What's going on, Hume? How's everybody doing? Good. You guys doing good? You ready for a great weekend? Good, I am too. My name's Nick. I hail from Phoenix, Arizona. And I am, we got some Phoenix fans in the house. I am thrilled to be here with you this weekend at Hume. I figured before I began, I would show you a picture of my family. This is my family. That is my wife, Rachel, and my three boys. I think I have uh, a picture of the three boys as well, potentially. Nope. Okay. Well, those three boys, they are awesome. Uh, They are five, three, and one. Their names are Titus, Jude, and Josiah. Uh, Titus just turned five like a few days ago, but I'm pretty sure he's convinced he just turned 22. This uh, last semester, I traveled a bunch. I was on the road like eight or nine times. And so every time before I went on the road, I would sit down with my boys and I would say, look, dad's going on a trip. I'm going to miss you very much. I will be back in three days. Please take care of mom while I'm gone. And so after enough times of doing this, just a few days ago, like basically for his fifth birthday, we sent him up north to play in the snow with grandma for a couple days. And just before he left, he goes, hey, dad, can I talk to you? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, dad. I'm going on a trip. I'm going to be gone for two days. I'm going to miss you. Take care of mom while I'm gone. He just gave me the whole pep talk for leaving on the trip. And I was like, thank you, buddy. I've been taking care of mom since before you existed. So chill. I am uh, very thankful to be here and very excited to be jumping in with you to the book of Ecclesiastes. And so if you brought a Bible with you, please feel free to open it to the book of Ecclesiastes. You may not have flipped there very much before, but if you go right to the middle of your Bible, like Psalms and Proverbs, and then you just flip to the right a little bit, it's right after the book of Proverbs, and we are going to spend all weekend. How pumped are we that we get an extra day at Hume this weekend? We're going to spend all weekend into Monday learning from God's Word as we explore some of these incredible themes that are in the book of Ecclesiastes. I want to begin by showing you a picture. Does anybody know who that picture is? Say it loud. Lewis and Clark. Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea. So listen, I want to tell you for just a second about the Lewis and Clark expedition. Lewis and Clark set out in the year 1803 in order to explore a massive group of land that had just been purchased called the Louisiana Purchase, and they set out westward in order to find an all-water route that would transnavigate the North American continent. So they were looking for a way for ships and vessels to be able to go all the way across North America in the water. Now, here's the problem about this massive, difficult, and dangerous expedition that they went on. The route that they were searching for does not exist. There is no all-water route that can take you from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean. It doesn't exist. The Rocky Mountains are right there in the middle, and there is no water that goes through the Rocky Mountains. There's no way to cross the continent through water, and yet these men went at great danger and great difficulty to try to find this, and it was a difficult expedition. They faced starvation and bears and frigid cold winters where they were liable to freeze to death. This is what they faced in order to try to find something that didn't exist. 
And it was such a devastating expedition that very few people actually know that when they came back, Meriwether Lewis, who is one half of Lewis and Clark, actually spent several years in such a deep depression that he failed to publish any of their findings. So imagine this, Lewis and Clark go on this massive expedition, and one of the privileges of doing something like they did was the ability to find and name these massive landmarks. But when they got back, he didn't publish any of his findings for many, many years. So it was about a hundred years that went by, and no one knew that Lewis and Clark were the ones who did that expedition first. And all of the things that they had named along their journey were afterwards named by someone else who had been there. And when they got back, they actually published their findings. And Meriwether Lewis was so despondent and so depressed that just a few years from re after returning from the journey, he ended his own life. Now, the reason I tell you that is, is this, because when you search for something that cannot be found, the inevitable result is frustration and despondence and even despair. And I want you to try to grasp this idea as we begin the book of Ecclesiastes, that life without God is a frustrating search for something that doesn't exist. Life without God is a frustrating search for something that cannot be found. Something that doesn't exist, because here's the reality, that you and I, along with every human being on planet Earth, you and I are hardwired to search for meaning and purpose and significance and value. We long for it. We need it, in fact. So we ask these questions, like questions of purpose. What is my life for? Why am I here? Why do I exist? Questions of significance. Does my life matter? Does it count for anything? Does it make a difference? Questions of value. What is my life worth? Is it precious to anyone or anything? We ask these questions about our lives, and if we choose to live as if there is no God, we will find that there are no answers to those questions. If we choose to believe and to live as if there is no God, we will never find what we are looking for. Life without God is a frustrating search for something that doesn't exist. Now, you don't need to just take my word for it, because maybe you're like, well, Nick, you're at a Christian camp. A bunch of us are Christians, though I don't assume everybody in the room is a Christian by any means. And you're just, you're just saying this stuff about people who don't believe in God. But is that what they would actually say about themselves? Well, don't take my word for it. Listen to atheists describe this. Richard Dawkins, in a book he wrote called A River Out of Eden, said this, The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no good, no evil, and nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Listen to William Provine, another famous atheist. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning in life, and no free will for humans either. And then perhaps most devastating, Alex Rosenberg, in a book that he wrote called The Atheist's Guide to Reality. This is what he wrote. This is not a Christian talking about what an atheist might think. This is, an, this is a book called The Atheist's Guide to Reality. 
What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. What is the meaning of, the li- what is the meaning of life? Ditto. There is none. Does history have any meaning or purpose? No. It is full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Now, you might be in the room and and you might think, well, life without God, I mean, come on, Nick, we're at a Christian camp, like, what are you talking about? Uh, Of course, we don't actually, we're, we're not a bunch of atheists, we're probably here because we have some inclination towards Christianity, maybe we grew up in a Christian home, maybe we personally claim to be a follower of Jesus, what are you talking about, life without God? But here's the reality, you and I, though we might not claim the name of atheist, we often find ourselves living like one. When we choose to live our lives and choose our habits and craft our manner of living as if there is no God or without respect to God, we act like atheists. We act as if there is no God, and what we find is that we end up on a frustrating search for something that cannot be found. And so if you have come to Hume Winter Camp this weekend and you find yourself burdened, you find yourself confused, frustrated, burnt out, at the end of your rope, anxious, depressed, worried, If you walk into this room tonight feeling like you are carrying all kinds of burdens, like you've been trying and running and searching and looking and nothing has been working, might I suggest to you that you have been looking for meaning and purpose and significance where it cannot be found. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is going to show us. That when we live life without respect to God, without reference to God, we are on a frustrating hamster wheel that has no end and can only lead us to disillusionment and disappointment. And so what I want to do is tonight I want to read the, first, the whole first chapter of Ecclesiastes. This is the biggest section that we'll cover, but it functions as a powerful introduction to this book. And what I want you to see here before we read is I want you to pay attention to a key phrase that's going to be repeated multiple times, and it's this phrase, under the sun, under the sun. And as we read this first chapter of Ecclesiastes, if you didn't bring a Bible, don't worry, it's going to be on the screen behind me. It's in the English Standard Version. If you have another version, don't worry. This phrase, under the sun, as we read, you need to know that it means this. It means apart from God. Under the sun refers to life down here. Life only with respect to earthly things. That is life under the sun. And that's what Solomon, who wrote this book, the book of Ecclesiastes, is describing to us. So let's read it. Ecclesiastes 1. I'm going to read 18 verses for us. Ecclesiastes 1, 1. And please remember as I read that these are the very words of God for us. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? 
A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king in Jerusalem, king, in, king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. What I want to show you in this first chapter is I want to show you what life is like under the sun. We just said that life apart from God is like a frustrating search for something that cannot be found. So what is that search like? How does that often take shape for us? And Solomon is going to write three ways that life under the sun is futile and frustrating. And I want to take them just one by one, and we'll do it like this. When I live under the sun, if I live without respect to God, if I live without reference to God, if I live like a functional atheist, as if there is no God, then this is what my life is like. When I live under the sun first, I am stumped on significance, I'm stumped on significance. Verse 1 begins, the words of the preacher. And that word preacher is where we get the, the, the title of this book, Ecclesiastes. That word preacher, it, it means the one who gathers people, the one who gathers God's people and then speaks to them. That's what the word Ecclesiastes means. And this preacher that we have speaking to us is the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, based on that title and what we're going to learn throughout the book, it's very clear that the one who wrote this book is King David's son, Solomon. And he doesn't tell us as much. He doesn't tell us his name. But the biographical details that he recounts in here are so clearly lined up with Solomon's biography that it's very clear he's the one who wrote it. He was the son of David. He was king of Israel in Jerusalem. As a very young man, if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll remember God told him that he could ask 
for what he desired, and he, instead of asking for riches and influence and power, he asked for wisdom, and God gave him great wisdom. And he applied that wisdom to ruling God's people, and yet, through the course of his life, we saw him actually lay aside that wisdom and at times make very foolish decisions. And yet, Solomon wrote the Proverbs, and Solomon wrote a couple Psalms, And here Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And what we'll find in this book is that Solomon was one of the richest and most influential people that has ever lived on planet Earth. He had everything that the world had to offer, and yet he ends up with a conclusion like this. Look at what he says in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, you might have a translation in front of you that says meaningless, meaningless. Meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. Now, what he's saying when he says meaningless is, when he says vanity, that word is a Hebrew word that refers to like a vapor, when you arrived at Hume Lake and the lights, uh, the, the sun goes down and it gets cold and you walk outside, you, when you breathe, you can see that, that mist, that fog, that vapor leave your mouth and then it's gone in a second. And, and that's actually the word that he's using. It's a, it's a poetic metaphor for the fleeting and insubstantial nature of life. And this is what Solomon concludes after a lifetime of having all the riches and all the power and pursuing every bit of pleasure and progress that he possibly could. His conclusion at the end of all of it is it's like a breath. It's here and it's gone. It is, I think, perhaps a better word even than vanity or meaningless is it's insignificant. It doesn't have substance. It doesn't stick around. What does it even mean? And what's it all for? At the end of all of these pursuits, all of these endeavors, all of this success, all of this power, Solomon says, I I found that it was insignificant and insubstantial, like a wisp of breath that leaves your mouth and it's gone in a second. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read stuff like this, I'm like, is the Bible even allowed to talk like that? Does anybody else feel that with me? Like, I sort of expect that the Bible should be like the Lego movie all the time. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of the team. Like, it has to be like chipper and happy and happy-go-lucky all the time. But here's one thing I love about the Bible. It is so realistic. The Bible doesn't flinch. The Bible doesn't shy away from hard topics. The Bible is not afraid to cover the things that you and I really struggle with and really wonder. And I'm willing to wager that there are many in this room, even at your young age, who have tried some things and pursued some things and even gotten some things. And at the end of the road, you have asked yourself, was that worth anything? I actually feel a little bit hurt and frustrated and disappointed and confused, and I don't know what to do next. That was meaningless. 
And I love that the Bible has the courage and the forthrightness and the authenticity to address something that real humans actually face because Solomon faced it. Solomon was stumped about where to find significance when he lived his life under the sun. When he forgot God and lived however he wanted to live, it all amounted to nothing. He was stumped on significance. This is where the Bible leaves us. This is where a life without God leaves us. No substance, no significance, no meaning, no purpose. This kind of literature, it's, it's intended to challenge you and to push you and to make you think. Solomon says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? I tried it all, and it ended up like a breath. That's the first reality of living life under the sun. The second is this. When I live under the sun, I am cynical about cycles. I'm cynical about cycles. The descriptions of verses 4 all the way through verse 11 are about patterns. It's about repetition. It's about cycles. It's about things that go round and round. There's, a, there's kind of a, a movie trope. There's a, a book uh, or a, a scene that you've read about in a book or seen in a movie before where uh, a group of characters are on a journey and they're trying to go somewhere and they're trudging through the forest and they're exploring. They're in a place that they've never been. And they're, they're going and going and going and going and all of a sudden one of the characters looks and says, hey, I, I swear I've seen that tree before. I, I swear we passed that boulder before. And you come to find out that despite the fact that they have been expending a whole bunch of energy, they've actually been going nowhere because they've been walking in a circle and they are totally lost. You know the scene that I'm talking about? Solomon says here that that's what life feels like sometimes. And Solomon feels pretty cynical about it. He feels a little jaded, kind of hard-hearted, and a little numb to it. He's actually a little kind of angry and frustrated about it. Because sometimes it feels like that is what life is like. Like we go around and around and around, and we come back to the exact same place. And so he describes it in the first few verses by talking about things that he's observed in the world, and specifically in nature. First, he talks about people. He says, a generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth remains forever. So a whole, a whole swath of people the world over will live and die, and then their children will live and die, and then their children will live and die, and the earth is still there, and the people come and go, and it doesn't amount to anything. And then he starts talking about things he sees like the sun. The sun rises and the sun goes down, and it hastens to the place where it rises. The sun comes up, the sun sets. The sun rises, the sun sets, and it happens over and over and over and over again. And then he talks about the wind. The wind blows to the south and around to the north, and around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits, the wind returns. Verse 7, now he talks about water. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. 
It's like the, the water is running like it's going somewhere, but it doesn't end up at a destination because you know what happens when it gets there? It evaporates and it turns into a cloud and then the clouds move and then the clouds dump the water and then the water runs and then it evaporates and it's just this endless perpetual cycle and Solomon, he ends up at a place where he's like, what, what is the point of all of it? Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. And then he enters into this description in verse 8 at the second half. He says, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. What is Solomon talking about? Well, Solomon had infinite resources. We're going to come to find out that there was nothing in this world that he could not have. There was nothing he couldn't buy. There was nothing he couldn't do. There was nothing he couldn't feel. There was nothing he couldn't experience. And he says, I looked at all of it, and there was still just more to see. I listened to all of it, and there was still just more to hear. And then he says, and, and I explored so long, and I looked so hard, and I searched so diligently, and all I found after my patterns, after observing all of this stuff, is that there's nothing even new. Everything that is now has been before. Everything that comes to pass is just a new version of an old thing. And what he's saying is, What's the point of all of it? This life under the sun where nature comes and goes and people come and go and I see it all and nothing's new. And then he finishes with this and no one's even going to remember any of this. No one's even going to remember it. It's kind of crazy to think about, right? That generations come and go and come and go and very quickly we even lose the memory of what came before us i mean think about it for a second if god has given you the gift of knowing your mom and your dad you know their names you're in relationship with them and if god has given you an even greater gift maybe you've got grandparents in your life and that's awesome you you know their names but you probably know only a little about their biography and their history and their story. It's unlikely that many of you know your great-grandparents, and you almost certainly don't know where they're from or what their story was or their name, unless you're particularly tuned into your, his, to your like family history. And then you go just one generation before that, and you ain't got no idea who those people are. No idea. So... What that means is that just two, three, four generations from now, no one will even remember that you existed. Same thing goes for me. And if our life is only lived under the sun, that can only lead us to cynicism, to being jaded 
to asking the questions that Solomon is asking here, like, what's even the point then? Why am I even alive? Why am I witnessing all this and seeing all this? And you and I, we so often actually play into this vicious cycle in our own lives. I think one expression of those verses that he accounted for at the end is a modern phenomenon that we call doom scrolling. Just think about it for a moment. Every single one of us who has a smartphone has found ourselves at one time or another like two and a half hours deep on YouTube shorts watching cat videos. You know what I'm talking about? And you're just like, how did I get here? You realize, you realize you're just like, you got sucked into the vortex of TikTok videos or YouTube shorts or Instagram scrolling or Snapchatting or whatever it is, and you are just, you're deep and you come out of like a time warp and you realize that you've been scrolling forever. And you know what that's like. You know the feeling. You've endlessly watched the same thing over and over again. It's like verse 8. The eye has no end of seeing. I've watched it over and over and over and over again. And you know your doom scrolling has gotten bad when you've seen the same video like six times. And you keep watching. You keep scrolling. You keep going. And when you get to the end of it, whether you're collapsing through sheer exhaustion or your eyeballs are burning or your brain is dead, whatever it is, you get to the end of it, you realize that you have added absolutely no value to your life whatsoever. In fact, it has just made you depressed about what you don't look like and what you don't have and what you don't do and you feel gross and empty and you're going to do it again tomorrow. How often have we been there? That's, that's life under the sun. It is like a cyclical hamster wheel that never ends and goes nowhere. It's a merry-go-round that never stops and never takes us to a destination worth getting to. And then there's one last way we live under the sun. When I live under the sun, I am lost in learning. Now, I know at this point you're like, wow, I'm really glad I came to Hume Lake this weekend. This is depressing. Thanks a lot, Nick. I'm going to review one star on Yelp when this sermon is over. Just hang with me. Hang with me. This is life under the sun. This is life without reference to God. When I live under the sun, the third, the third reality is I am lost in learning. I'm lost in learning. I'm stumped about significance. I don't know what it all means or what's it all for. I'm cynical about cycles. What's the point of all of this coming and going? And then I'm lost in learning. You see, Solomon, with all of the resources at his disposal, decided that he would try to solve the problem through reading and research and searching and understanding and philosophy and history and economics and politics. He was going to read and he was going to learn and he was going to dig down to the bottom and he was going to actually find out the purpose of life. If anyone in the world was capable of doing it, it would be someone like Solomon who had access to everything that had ever been written, who could send emissaries to other countries and learn from their philosophers, who could have access to all the information that humanity possessed. And he decided, look at verse 13, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. You see, this is what Solomon says. Solomon says, I searched and I read and I researched and I learned. Do you want to know all that I came up with? 
the findings that Solomon presents are, are here, especially in those two little lines of poetry. If you have a version of the Bible, they're probably, they're probably offset like a little couplet. It's verse 15 and verse 18. This is the sum total of all Solomon's learning. Verse 15 says, What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. The first thing he says is, you, know, you want to know what I discovered after all of this learning? That there are some things that are broken that I cannot fix. And isn't that still true in our world today? I think one of the lies that modernity has brought upon us is that more information means a better life. Right? We live in the day and age where we have access to more information instantaneously at our fingertips than any humans have ever had in history. And guess what? Our lives are no better off for it. You can pull out your smartphone at any moment and you can Google the answer to any question that has an answer and you're still depressed and you still find yourself lonely, and you still hurt, and you still ache. Why? Because more information is not what you actually need. There's some information you absolutely need. And yet, this embarrassment of riches, this infinite access to all the data that the world has to offer has not made our lives any better. Why? Because we realize that there are things that are broken that we cannot fix. With all of our technology, with all of our progress, with all of our luxury, with all of the, with all of the comfort and the genius that this world has to offer, smartphones and rockets and the internet and modern medicine, there are still things we can't fix, no matter how much information we have. Our loved ones still die of cancer. Do you know why? Because we kind of know what cancer is, but we certainly don't know how to fix it. Tsunamis still devastate cities and kill people. And you know what? No matter how much you know, even if you can calculate a thousand years into the future and know how the tectonic plates will shift and where the waves will go, you cannot stop it from destroying the way that it will. There's... There's things in this world that are so broken that information can't fix them. The second thing that he learned is that the more he knew, the more depressed he became. Verse 18 says, for in much wisdom is much vexation. <laughs> we don't use that word anymore, vexation. I am vexed. Like I'm deeply perplexed and troubled by this. The more I learned the more difficult it became. And then look at that last little line there. He who increases knowledge increases sorrow. He says, the, the more I became aware of, the more burdened I was. And, and think about Solomon lived in a day and age where information was very slow to travel. 
where if he was going to find out about events in a far-off land, it would take months for them to get to him. And think about how much information we have available to us now where we have, where we have Twitter, and we can find out that there are, there's, a, there's a global crisis, and there's a war here, and there's an atrocity here, and there's a shooting here, and there's a criminal here, and there's someone on the loose over here. We can find out about all of it in an instant, and there's nothing we can do to fix it. It's like, congratulations, you know about every problem in the world, and you can't solve any of them. That's where this, it, it leaves us. He says, with increased knowledge comes increased sorrow. Solomon grew to learn this, this reality that the more you learn, the less you know. Has anyone ever experienced this? Like, the more you learn, the more you realize that you actually don't understand. I, I've certainly experienced that in this life. I've heard it said this way, as the shoreline of your knowledge grows, so does the ocean of your ignorance. As you become more and more aware of things in this world, you actually should be humbled by the vastness of the things that you don't know and don't understand. But this is what the world has to offer. This is life under the sun, is just know more and pursue more and do more and think more and relate more. And yet what Solomon says is, I've tried it all. I searched it all out. I worked on all of it. I tried all of it, and none of it actually worked for me. This is wisdom according to the world, and that's why the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He, the Bible in Proverbs 9 says, you want to know what wisdom is? It, it's this. You have to start living with God as your point of reference. If you try to live in wisdom and knowledge and intellectualism and information and study and research and learning, but you do it apart from the most important thing that can be learned, which is the nature and character of God, you will only end up as a fool. But if you want to be truly wise, you need to begin with reverence and awe for the creator God who made you. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that's the reason that I have told you all that I've just told you. That's why we've spent the last 20 depressing minutes studying the first chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes because this is the whole point. If you have reached this point in the message and you're like, I'm kind of sick of this, not sure if I want to come to the rest of the sermons this weekend, you are in good company because that's the whole point of the book of Ecclesiastes. Here's what the point of the book of Ecclesiastes is. Solomon writes about the futility of life under the sun so that you and I will be drawn to consider the beauty of life above the sun. Now, what is life above the sun? Life above the sun is life with God in the picture. Because God is the one who exists above the sun. So often the Bible refers to God as God who, who is in the heavens. Psalm 115 says, our God is in the heavens. That's God is up there. That's why we have those images of God up there, because that's the way the Bible describes it. 
God is in the heavens. God exists above the sun. God exists above the fray of human existence. And he, this, this big theological word, he transcends all of it. And if you and I are going to live truly meaningful, significant, purposeful lives, we have to do it with God in the picture. And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. Life under the sun, it's full of frustration and futility. There is no significance to be found. There's no cycle that doesn't lead you to cynicism. There's there's no true joy or wisdom to be found in more information, in more learning. When I arrived at this point, it reminded me of this incredible quote by C.S. Lewis. It says this, If I find within myself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the simplest explanation is that I was made for another world. If life under the sun is so frustrating and so futile, can I plead with you through the course of this weekend to consider life above the sun, life with God in the picture? Because here's where I want to end. We are all searching for purpose, significance, and value. And with God, we can find them and experience them. So here's, here's some hope for you. <laughs> I want to end this message on a hopeful note. And here's the good news. All of us are searching for purpose, significance, and value. And with God, we can find them. We can have them. We can know them. We can experience them. Life with God can be a life of purpose because you were made by a personal creator God and he created you with a purpose to know him and to love him. You can have a life of significance because what God says about you is that he made you with a part to play in his plan. You have a significant role in the world that he made and he intends you to be an instrument for his glory and for the good of other people. You have a significant life and you have a valuable life because you were created in the image of God and you have been redeemed by the blood of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that you could be adopted into his family you are significant and purposeful and valuable because you have a transcendent personal creator God who wants to know you and love you. And so I would just plead with you this weekend to consider life with God in the picture. I, I thought of this image. Because you might think to yourself, Nick, that sounds amazing a life of significance and a life of purpose and a life of value, I want that. How do I experience it? And here's a metaphor as we finish. The way you experience it is you, you treat God like your North Star. I brought a little picture of the North Star. It's actually a star called Polaris. It's one of the brightest stars in the night sky, and it's very easily identifiable because of the way it's kind of nested in some of these really famous constellations. And the North Star for centuries and centuries has been a way that people were able to navigate when they were lost. And here's why. 
I found this so fascinating. I didn't really know this until I researched this for this message. The reason that the North Star can be used in order to navigate is because it moves very little in the night sky. And the reason is, if you took, if you took the Earth and you took the South Pole and the North Pole and you drove, a, you drove like a stick straight through it, the North Star would be like right on top of that stick. And here's what it means. As the Earth spins around and around, the stars that are further away from that center, they spin around in the sky. So you can't use them to navigate. But the North Star is directly above the North Pole, which means as the Earth spins, that star doesn't move. And so here's what that means. If, you are, if you're adrift at sea, if you're in a place you've never been, if you have no idea where to go, you can look to that North Star and using it as your point of reference, you can know where you're headed. And if you've come to Hume feeling lost, you've come to Hume and all of life feels like it's spinning and you don't know where to turn, you don't know what to do, I want to tell you that God is your North Star. The God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is not far away. He is very near. He cares about you. He loves you. This weekend, by his spirit, through his word and his people, he wants to reveal himself to you and show you that life with him is a life full of meaning, both now and forever. I'm so excited to spend this weekend with you, and I hope and pray that many of you this weekend will know for the first time or will be reminded again that life is full of significance and purpose and value when it's life with God in the picture. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thanks for the gift of your word, and thank you that you have not left us to wonder about this life and about this world, but you have invited us into life with you. Thank you, God, that you do not hide from us or run from us, but you reveal yourself to us and you speak to us. Help us, God, to open our minds and our hearts so that we might engage with you this weekend in a meaningful way. Would we receive your word? Would we receive your love? Would we know the hope of your son Jesus Christ and all that he's accomplished on our behalf? And would we have lives that are filled with eternal significance and with enduring value because they are lives that are marked by our creator, God? We love you. We ask you for your help with this. We confess together that we need you. And so we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said...